Welcome to Why Are We So Restless? I'm Josh Atro, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity, theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church, and one of your co-hosts for this podcast. St. Augustine famously opened his confessions by testifying to the restlessness of the human heart and its cure. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. 1,600 years later, we still seem to be searching for that rest. This podcast is about how that old restless heart that Augustine so agonized over is still with us today, though packaged in some new ways. We hope that you find it refreshing as you consider different ways to attend to the world, your own soul, and God so that you might find true rest in Him. In this episode, John Yates, who serves on the center's pastoral leadership team and is the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, encourages us to live as locals, setting down roots, treating every space as sacred, and learning to love the people we encounter. Following John's talk, I'll rejoin you along with my co-host and New City Fellow alumnus, Micah Vandergrift. We'll be joined by a special guest to reflect on what we have heard about how it applies to daily life. So stay with us for the second half of the podcast. We're restless because we no longer know where we live. We're restless because our roots have come loose. So in the spring and summer of 2020, much of the world was in lockdown. Unable to leave our homes except for essential business, many of us slipped into what was at first a really welcome change of pace. It was almost like a snow day at first. Uh, But the shine wore off really quickly. We got tired of our families, of our roommates. (laughs) We got tired of being alone. We grew restless. We were no longer going out, but we were logging in. We connected more and more through the virtual world. And for a time, we were really good about connecting with friends and family through FaceTime, Zoom, and other apps. Some of us actually, we we happily found that we were connecting with old friends from past seasons. It was pretty exciting. But uh, we soon grew weary. Most of us discovered that the amount of energy required for meeting in person doubles for a virtual gathering. It's twice as exhausting. It wasn't sustainable, but we were still in various stages of lockdown. Most of us, those who were working full-time, we were working remotely. We were discouraged from in-person gatherings, and we were still on the internet, reading the news, trying to understand the virus, becoming increasingly alarmed by the things we saw in the world around us. As our virtual engagement with the wider world increased, our local connections diminished. We were no longer running into friends at the store. We were no longer talking to colleagues in the kitchen at work. We weren't catching up with other parents on the sidelines of little league games. All the while, national and global headlines were screaming for our attention. So in some ways, the internet, it became more real than our neighborhoods. Virtual reality took precedence over physical reality, and we all became accidental Gnostics. Now, that phrase merits a little bit of unpacking. Gnosticism, 
was this religious offshoot of the early church. It was a mishmash of mythology and Christianity. And one of the hallmarks of Gnosticism was a devaluing of physical bodies and this physical world. Salvation was spiritual. Eternal life was ethereal. Bodies, physical bodies were bad. The earth was temporary. For Gnostics, the goal of religion was to escape the confines of this world and be delivered from bodily place-bound existence. There's always been a Gnostic impulse within certain branches of the Christian church, a tendency to see bodies as bad and physical reality as a distraction from spiritual reality. But the accidental Gnosticism of our present age is different insofar as it makes no overt judgment about physical reality. It's simply the natural disembodiment of much of our lives as so much of who we are and what we do has shifted online. So the pandemic, it shoved us forward along this path, no doubt, but the trajectory had already been set. The path had been laid. That phrase, accidental Gnostics, it comes from a recent book by Daniel Grothy called The Power of Place, in which he makes an observation that I've heard elsewhere Uh, He says, it seems that in this day and age, we are everywhere and nowhere all at once. We're everywhere and nowhere all at once. Our ties to neighborhood and city have weakened. We don't read the local paper or watch the local news as much as we used to except to find out the weather. Our lives are less and less defined by the place where we live as by the profiles that we curate and project online. At the same time, we follow the lives of celebrities more than the lives of our neighbors. We all know more about Will Smith after the last two weeks than we do about the people in our neighborhood. We're connected to online communities through shared interest more than to local communities through shared space. We're more deeply invested in national and global news than ever before. And this connection at a distance it leads to disconnection close at hand. As Jeffrey Bilbro observed in his book, Reading the Times, making the news media the primary lens through which we view the world magnifies the significance of distant, shocking events and obscures the important events happening at hand. As we know from experience, this kind of news consumption can leave us feeling anxious and powerless because we can't do anything about these things. Even worse, it distracts us from those important things nearby where we could act. I mentioned this in the last talk. As the novelist and essayist Barbara Kingsolver writes, she says, it's possible to be so overtaken and stupefied by the tragedies of the world that we don't have any time or energy left for those closer to home, the hurts that we should take as our own. So if it's not already obvious, I want to argue that this is a bad thing. Uh, that this is a source of our restlessness, and that if we want to feel more settled, we need to become more rooted in the places where we live. And in order to to help us do this, I want to take us back to the garden one last time. And I want to make a really simple observation. When God made Adam and Eve, he did not turn them loose on the world as a whole. He didn't take them up onto the peak of the highest mountain, turn them around to take in the view of the world and tell them that it was all theirs for the taking. Instead, he took them and he placed them in a garden. 
But one of the fascinating things about the two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is this relationship between the global and the local. So in Genesis 1, God sets humankind, humankind down on the earth in a global sense. So verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the entire earth is a home for humanity and we've been called to steward it all. The text continues in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and had dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So chapter one goes on in this very global vein, explaining the superintendent role that we're meant to have over God's good creation. But then in chapter two, as the attention shifts from humankind as a whole to Adam and Eve as individuals, the locational focus shifts as well. And we move from global to local. So here's chapter two, verses five to eight. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the Lord and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So as soon as we start talking about specific people, we're directed to specific places. God gave the world to humanity as a whole to steward, chapter 1. He gave Adam and Eve a garden to care for, chapter 2. And he said to them, here's your patch to tend to. This is the place where I've called you to grow and to bear fruit. I think this is important. Humanity, we've been given a global vocation, but individuals inhabit particular places and particular times. It's part of our, our finiteness. Place matters. The neighborhood where you live is the single most important place in the world as far as you are concerned. We see this affirmed in a surprising set of circumstances later in the history of Israel as God allowed his people to be exiled during the time of the prophet Jeremiah. So at that time, all of the best and the brightest were stolen away from Jerusalem. They were uprooted and they were transplanted, kidnapped, taken to a foreign land. Now, this was a common tool used by conquering kings, and it served a double purpose. First, it removed those most likely to raise an insurrection against occupying forces, just took them out. And second, it forced those who had been conquered to quickly enculturate in the homeland of their oppressors if they wanted to survive. So by doing this, it, it prevented rebellion and it forced cultural change, both of which were key for maintaining long-term rule over a vassal state. So everyone knew what Nebuchadnezzar was up to when he removed the upper echelons of Jewish society and he relocated them to Babylon. And we would expect that God's instructions to his people would have been something like this. Look, maintain your distinct identity by keeping yourselves apart. Don't learn the language. Don't conform. Don't settle down because you're not going to be there for long. That's what we would, I think, humanly expect God to say. But those are not the instructions he gives his people. Instead, he has Jeremiah write them a letter. And this is what he says in his letter. He's, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is fascinating. The Lord, he then goes on to explain that they're gonna be in Babylon for 70 years before he brings them home to Jerusalem. That's a lifetime, right? Most of the people who got this letter would never go home. And so the Lord says, sink roots. He doesn't say to worship foreign gods, to stop following the law of Moses, to abandon the covenant or to give up hope of going home. But he makes clear that part of what it means to be his people is to set down roots and love neighbors, even when your new home is essentially a prison. So place matters. Not because certain places are special, though some are, but because of how, how God calls us to inhabit them. That's what makes them special. So one last biblical example, and it's the most significant. Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible called The Message, he translates John 1.14 this way. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's a wonderful turn of phrase. Now, it's not a literal translation, to be sure, but it captures something so important about the incarnation of the Son of God. So when Jesus became one of us, he chose to inhabit a particular time and place with all of the limitations and possibilities inherent in that fixed reality. So he grew up in the most nondescript and insignificant of places, a small village called Nazareth. And though his ministry took him throughout Galilee and down to Jerusalem during the final three years of his life, most of his first 30 years, they were all spent in Nazareth. He was and still is known as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus could have chosen to inhabit our world at any time in any place. He could have lived in Rome. And that would have made a lot more sense if he wanted to reach the world because Rome was the center of the world, right? But he settled in Nazareth and he lived the bulk of his life with the same 60 to 80 families that shared the village with his family. So when later on he told the crowds to love their neighbors, he knew from 30 years of experience, exactly what that looked like in a small village. So the scope of Jesus's work was global, Genesis 1, but the way he went about it was shockingly local, Genesis 2. I think that's a helpful reminder for the church. We have this globe-spanning vocation, but to each of us, God gives a local responsibility. The people among whom you live, work, and play, they are your primary mission the city is the good garden where we've been planted. It's also the place where we live out our exile. And it's the locale where we fight against feelings of obscurity by loving the neighbors God has given us. So St. Augustine puts it simply, 
He says, all people should be loved equally, but you cannot do good to all people equally. So you should take particular thought for those who, as if by lot, happen to be particularly close to you in terms of place, time, or any other circumstances. When we remember the importance of place in Scripture and we allow our relationships to be determined by place, we grow roots and we become less restless. But how do we do this? Again, I want to give you three practices to consider as you seek to set down roots. And the first is this. Learn to see the spaces around you as sacred. Learn to see the spaces around you as sacred. So Wendell Berry, you may be familiar with him. He's a novelist, an essayist, and a poet. And for many years, he had a discipline of taking a Sunday walk through the woods, uh, through the woods and the fields and the riverbanks near his home in rural Kentucky. And each Sunday, he would write a sonnet. And I do, I think this this is very much a part of his discipline of rest, um, even though it was active and productive. So Barry writes poetry as a means of connecting to the place where he lives. And he writes as a way of paying attention, as a way of seeing, listening, pausing, praying, praising. He shares with Annie Dillard, an incredible affection for the local and for the mundane. And both of them in their work, they affirm something about the places that they observe, that in the eyes of God, these places are sacred. They affirm that by attending to them. So in a poem that's entitled, How to Be a Poet to Remind Myself, uh, Wendell Berry writes this word of reminder to himself. He writes There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. So what makes a place sacred? It's the presence of God. Either he's present and it's sacred or he's not and it's desecrated. Where is God present today? Everywhere his people set foot. So if you are there, the place is sacred. And if it's sacred, it deserves to be treated with reverence and with care. Another way to put this is that there's nothing secular about the city where we live. Every neighborhood and every street exists within a spiritual reality in which the God of the universe longs to be present and the forces of darkness push to keep him out. So we need to learn to see the spaces where we live, the neighborhoods, restaurants, shops, greenways, sidewalks, as sacred and worthy of careful attention. As Wendell Berry says in his essay, The Unsettling of America, no matter how much one may love the world as a whole, one can live fully in it only by living responsibly in some small part of it. So learn to see the spaces around you as sacred. The second practice is this, take a vow of stability. Take a vow of stability. So Benedict of Nursia was a Christian monk in the fifth century. Educated in Rome, he grew disenchanted with the lewdness of Roman society and license within the church. Uh, Ultimately moving to Monte Cassino, where he gathered together a small monastic community. And in leading that community, he developed a rule, a set of guidelines that govern their life together. This included vows that each member would make to the others, among which was the vow of stability. 
Now, this sounds odd and appealing, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great to, to be able to ensure our mental, emotional, and financial stability by making a vow? Uh, of course, the original meaning was different. To take a vow of stability was to promise to stay put, not to run away, to leave the community, or to abandon those friends with whom they lived. Now, at that time, it was common practice for monks to move around. Monks looking for their next spiritual fix. They would hear about exciting things going on at a retreat center in Sicily, or uh, on a mountaintop hermitage in the, Dol- in the Dolomites. And off they would go. And it's not unlike church hopping today. When someone hears that the praise band at Sojourn Church is just amazing, or the preaching at St. Bart's is incredible. So Benedict really despised these thrill- thrill-seeking monks. He even had a name that he coined for them. He, co- coined, he called them gyrovagues. Uh, from the Latin gyro, meaning circle, and vagus, which means wandering. Benedict wanted to end the practice of people floating from one spiritual high to the next. He knew that Christian maturity came from living in community. And he understood that deep social transformation came about only through the stable, committed practices of a local Christian community. And so the monks who gathered around him took a vow of stability. As Daniel Grothy comments, through the vow of stability, Benedict was not trying to lock us out of a great big world that's just waiting to be explored. He was trying to invite us into a rich and textured communion with the people and the places we've been given. I wonder if we shouldn't consider doing something similar. And what I mean by this is, is not some naive promise that you'll never move from Raleigh or you'll never change churches. I don't mean that you should never own a second home. What I intend by making this suggestion is to urge each of us to take our city and our neighborhood seriously as the place where God has called us to love and to serve our neighbors. Now, this this means prioritizing proximate friendships over elective friendships, those that we cultivated at a distance or online as a result of shared interests. I, ha- I hate to say it, but most Facebook friends are not real friends. They are acquaintances or distant relations that we want to stay connected with, which is good, but who don't actively share the same sacred space that we inhabit. And those friendships, they're fine, but they shouldn't take up the center of our attention. And we need to understand what I mentioned in my earlier talk about time, which is that real friendship, it only develops slowly. So as Daniel Grothy writes, lifelong friendship is formed by regular routines. Such a great reminder, which is to say that friendship has to be planned for and calendared. And that applies to both Christian and non-Christian friends. Now, this might lead to some hard questions. Have I found more of my identity and community online or in real relationships here in the city and at church? Am I a spiritual wanderer dipping into the latest podcast preaching or am I rooted in my church? Am I actively investing in a smaller community like a community group or, or are my relational ties loose and largely disconnected? Ties into the earlier talk about identity and the important role of the local church body in helping us to form 
to be formed as people. So see the spaces around you as sacred and consider the value of a vow of stability. The third practice is extremely practical. And it's this, walk and pray. Walk and pray. So I imagine many of you already go for a walk on a regular basis. You may hop on the greenway for exercise, meet a friend for a regular catch-up, or take a stroll after dinner when the weather's nice. But walking is good for more than just exercise or fostering a particular relationship. It can be a great way to learn to treat your neighborhood as a sacred space, to get to know your neighbors and begin to intercede for them. So if you want to sink your roots more deeply where you are, there's nothing more profoundly helpful than praying over your neighborhood. And as you do, Take time to notice who's there, what's going on, the state of each home. Praise God for the beauty you see and seek his blessing and intervention in the face of ugliness. Pray over homes. Pray for neighbors by name. Develop a pattern of caring for that sacred space right outside your door. The Baptists, the Southern Baptists, uh, no surprise, have developed a really great resource for doing this. And uh, it's called Bless Every Home. This is a website worth checking out, blesseveryhome.com. By signing in for free, uh, Bless Every Home allows you to enter your address. And by merging data from multiple sources, it, it then give, lets you see the names of your neighbors in the streets around you. So through the website, you have the option uh, of making journal entries for individual homes noting what you pray for, or if you know something that the family's going through, you can jot it in a, in a journal that's visually linked to the home when you put your cursor over it. You can also choose to identify homes by color, which allows you to map who you're praying for, those whose names you know, families you want to meet, etc. It's a really fascinating and I think powerful tool. In the power of place, Daniel Grothy uses the metaphor of a garden to describe the neighborhoods where we live. And that can be extended to apart, apartment buildings, to our workplaces, to the clubs we belong to, and even the grocery store where we regu regularly shop. We've been set down in these gardens to tend them and to cultivate. So you're never just a shopper or a resident or a patron or a member. You're a gardener with a special vocation to cultivate that sacred space you inhabit. So you, may have, you may have watched the recent BBC drama, All Creatures Great and Small. Uh, it's wonderful, isn't it? It tells the story of James Harriet, a veterinarian who moved from Glasgow to the Yorkshire Dales and spent the rest of his life there tending to the animals and owners of a cluster of small villages and outlying farms. And this, this series is wonderful, and the work of Harriet is inspiring. And what makes his writing, on which the drama is based, so compelling is the intimacy with which he knows and loves the people and the animals around him. He spent his entire adult life devoted to a few square miles uh, of barely untamed and breathtakingly beautiful countryside. And his devotion, it shines through in his writing and in the television production. 
He was committed to place. So we can never allow ourselves to become tourists in our hometowns. Taking in the sights, eating at good restaurants, and sticking close to the small company of people we've chosen to travel with. We must instead learn to live like locals, setting down roots, treating every space as sacred, and learning to love those lives that we one of the reasons we're restless, I think, is because we no longer know where we live. By discovering the sacred spaces around us, taking a vow of stability and going for walks, perhaps surprisingly, we can recover a sense of place and then sink deep roots that bear gospel fruit over time. All right, so this is uh, Josh and I back again uh, for our comments and uh, discussion on the series, Why Are We So Restless? Um, I'm Micah v Vandegrift. Uh, I'm a newly minted user experience strategist. Uh, who, I don't know what it means yet, so don't ask me. Uh, <laughs> here with Josh Fatrow, our uh, resident theologian and director of the Center for Public Christianity and lead teacher for the New City Fellows. Yes, Did I get all, it all those, you got it all. <laughs> I won't explain what I do either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and our, our, our guest for this uh, uh, conversation is uh, my favorite of all of them, and that is because it's my wife, uh, uh, Abby, uh, who, do you want to introduce yourself or shall I? Sure, I'm Abby. Biggest <laughs> 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 <His> favorite guest. <laughs> um, yep. Uh, wife, um, homeschool mom, graphic designer on the side. Um, yeah. And you, you don't know this, but I uh, every time I'm telling other people about you, I always claim that you are an artist, yes. and you don't often include that in your own bio. But yeah. it is something that I know is very important to you, and that I want other people to know as well. Yeah. So you're a creative person in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's dig in. Um, so why are we so restless? The topic that we're taking on today is place. Uh, thinking about uh, location and and place. So, Abby, I'm wondering if you could start with just give us your your first uh, general reactions to the to the talk. Sure. Um, well, I love the discussion on place, um, and I like what John brought out points. Um, I think there's definitely a lot more um, because it's just a really um, in depth talk topic. So. Um, I loved um, towards the end when he talks about sacred space mm. and um, that was something that really resonated um, and really makes um, just solid the place where you live. Right. And wherever that is. Um, and yeah, I mean, technology is always our topic of discussion. And so <laughs> Um, I think that's really helpful now um, to see that with the ways in which um, we allow ourselves to be displaced. So just a few of the general thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talking about sacred space, I was thinking as, as preparing for this about our home, right, as, mm -hmm. as a sense of, of place. Um, could you talk about some of the ways I'm, uh, I don't I can't ever remember the authors of the books that you read. But, yeah. <laughs> um, Liturgy of the Ordinary. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And some of the ways that you have brought those ideas into our home to like cement a, a sense of place for our kids, sure. uh, but also uh, point out to a sense of 
that you know a place of God's creation, like we're we're part of the world. Yeah. How do you do that in in homeschool or in our home? Sure. Well, for one, um, you know, we have a we have a routine, right? Um, it's always devotion in the morning, that sort of thing. But um, we also sing. So I sing with the boys. Uh, I teach them hymns. That to me is wonderful when I hear my child. One, you know, one of our child <laughs> children <laughs> in the next room singing a hymn that we learned months ago. And it's just embedded into his mind. And I love that. And I just read, I think it was in uh, You Are What You Love or maybe another book by James K. Smith where he was quoting someone else who said, singing is like a second prayer. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that um, definitely brings the feeling of sacredness in our home. But it's just the the rhythms that we invoke, right? Time spent outside and noticing the world around us and the little things and the big things um, to me that that's special because life happens in details too, right? And so, and that brings back to this point of like this disconnectedness with the rea- with reality and virtual, right? Mm-hmm. So. Our children experiencing reality is very important to me. And so that's why we don't watch television or why they don't have their own iPads, things like that, because I want them to experience real, what is real, right? It's the feel of grass on your bare, dirty feet, you know, it's (laughs) climbing a tree, it's getting wet from the water hose and, you know, it's all those things. Yeah, and well, and my my kids, especially my son, like doing those things with your kids. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that stuck out with with John's talk is just, I think for for so much of the evangelical culture, we have uh, part of the DNA of kind of evangelicals, which is the community I grew up in, is that we we want to go change the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes in our in our desire to go change the world and to be activists, and we've kind of thought bigger is better, and we need to have a further reach. Everything's a bigger reach. Mm-hmm. Everything's a bigger reach. And so with that, there's a kind of uh, mentality that uh, sometimes misses, or I think has often missed, just ministering right in front of you in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And how, as we've kind of gone big, we've gotten caught up in the celebrity culture along the way mm-hmm. and all of the kind of fallout that we've been a part of over the last, especially last few years and have been, has done a lot of damage. Of course, mm-hmm. there's lots of things that go into that, but I do wonder if some of it is this kind of calling or this missing this calling to uh, be faithful in a particular area and be rooted rather than even for me going to seminary, kind of the, the, the pastors we pick, we kind of idolized or were put in front of us were these kind of mega church pastors who had a huge following and were kind of celebrities and, and this kind of different way to imagine, I think particularly for me, who's thinking about ministry you know, what is our calling and our calling to a particular place mm-hmm. and a particular people mm-hmm. and how that, how that changes and should change us. Yeah. 
Abby, you uh, mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, friendships, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering uh, how can we understand, and Josh, you were just talking about scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we understand rootedness in, in friendships or in mm-hmm. the people that we're around, our neighbors, right, mm-hmm. or the people we go to church with or people we see daily? How do we understand rootedness um, in a world where we're all, it seems like we're always living at all the scales. So mm-hmm. when I say scale, I'm, I'm thinking of like local, national, global, and virtual on top of and between all that. Mm-hmm. We, we all um, kind of all live at all those scales all the time. Mm-hmm. So how, how um, you were talking about like a, a consumerist way of, of approaching mm-hmm. friendships. Can you t- t- say a little more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen this and I've done this in my life approaching friendships with a consumeristic mindset, right? Like if something is going wrong in that friendship, there's a disconnect, there's something that happened, an offense, right? It's really hard to reconcile sometimes um, and to fix that relationship. It takes a lot of work. Just real friendships take a lot of work in general, you know? So sometimes it's easier just to have surface friends. Sometimes it's easier just to have online friends. When relationship is broken, sometimes it's easier just to say, well, this isn't really worth kind of fixing. Let me just jump to my next friend. So, you know, I liken it to a pair of shoes, right? Your strap breaks. So you just, most people just throw them away. They don't take it to go get fixed, right? That takes more time. That takes money. That takes effort. Um, Instead, you just wear any of your other number of shoes or you go buy another shoe. So... Yeah, it takes effort. You know, are we so busy that that effort isn't worth it or we don't have that time, right? It's easier to post on Facebook what's going on with your life instead of calling somebody or texting somebody or meeting with somebody and doing that together and, and talking. So Yeah, that, that um, I was thinking back to the talk and one of the things that, that John challenges us to do is to take a vow of stability, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, all of us are relatively recent trans- transplants to Raleigh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it look like, especially for you, Josh, being involved in ministry and the center and fellows and uh, mentoring and growing communities here? What is the vow of stability or, or mm-hmm. how, how, do you, how do you sense that rootedness in your own life here? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm still working that out. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the poster child for that. <laughs> I, uh, but I, but in a f- there's, I can say a few things. I think I think one thing is as we thought about the strategy at the center and the fellows program, you know, we've had people suggest, well, let's let's think about the ministry nationally. Let's think about that, mm-hmm. and we've really uh, our leadership has said, no, we are about the triangle. We're about this space. And if we, if we happen to do something that's uh, worthwhile here and other people want to see that, that's fine. That's great. But we're looking really to invest in, in this area. But Micah, let me come back at you (laughs) because I know that you, you didn't get the, um, for those who are jumping in here on this podcast, they might, um, they might not know kind of how much you think about technology. <laughs> and when we start talking about local place and technology, I mean, some, your whole, your whole work is wrapped up in technology. Yeah. And 
you don't let your kids watch TV. <laughs> so, so like, you know, you love technology and yet you're, you've created these structures at home. Maybe, maybe just, uh, maybe elaborate on some of this. You can, there's a lot different directions you could go there. But yeah, yeah. Pa- Pastor Kaylor and I talked about this recently. <laughs> we did a, um, a session for, for or we were going to, and then I wasn't able to be there, but for parents about technology um, and thinking about how technology, what boundaries and barriers uh, should we set up in, in our homes? And so the, the, as, as Caleb and I were talking, there were like two ideas that we started to circle around. One was that um, we, we're, we're always sort of mediated a couple of layers away from information. So the thing that I, you're right in saying that my job is about technology, but the thing that I'm really care about or I'm passionate about is information. And so right now um, we are sort of mediated by a device often, right? A, a piece of technology and a platform, uh, so a website like Google or, or Facebook or whatever, before we even encounter information, something mm-hmm. that might be good or that might be bad or informs us or, or forms us in a, in a certain way. So um, this is like a, a, an impact and, and a, uh, a forming moment from our, our, our path through the New City Fellows that I've come around in the last couple of years to um, believing more that the kind of information that we want to present, especially in our home to our kids, um, I don't want it to be mediated that many layers away, right? So we have lots more books in our house. And like mm-hmm. the the perennial argument, not argument, thing that we have to talk about is where are we going to put all these books? <laughs> we need more bookshelves now. Now that's my type of I, argument. I knew you would like that. Yeah, I love this. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are, those are good problems to have is yeah, yeah. my theory. Yeah. Yeah. But for, so who's on the side of not more books? No, I, not, neither of us are. Right. <laughs> yeah. But if you would have, if you would have talked to me a couple of years ago, I, I was very much an advocate for, and, and most of my job is about, well, the information is out there. Let's go get the information. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of that and most of that in our current context is online. Mm-hmm. But um, through the feeling of rootedness that, that, we've, that we've invested in here in Raleigh, through the church, um, through uh, like we, uh, both Abby and I re- read and were inspired by uh, Wendell Berry's mm-hmm. Jaber Crow. That, that sense of place is more and more important to me. And so um, uh, here's a, a weird, or maybe not a weird example, but I've made it more of a habit now when I happen to pick up the iPad and want to just be skimming that I'll look at the news and observer mm-hmm. because I, 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 need, I, I need and want to know what's happening here because mm-hmm. that matters to me. Yeah, yeah I want to read the BBC and Al Jazeera and, and see what's happening on a all the corners of the world because my information brain is ticking, right? Yeah. But um, things that are reported in the, in the News and Observer are things that will actually impact my neighbor across the street or mm-hmm. the, you know, when we drive into town and go eat at a restaurant over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's become more important to me uh, to have that sense of localness in my information habits mm-hmm. in recent years. Yeah. Yeah, I had a... Um, uh, another homeschool mom asked like, well, what are you telling your kids yeah. about um, Ukraine? And we have a, a nine and five-year-old and I'm like, well, nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what do, what do they need yeah. to know about Ukraine? Yeah. Like that information has, they can't do anything with that. Right. Um, Tell them about the thing. Yeah. Okay. I was, didn't know if you wanted to talk. 
No, go ahead. Okay. It's good. So um, I love Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And so in there, he talks about the action information ratio, right? And mm-hmm. so that was something that really sunk into my brain. And I consider that all the time for myself and for my children. And so, you know, I talked to her about that and I was like, yeah, Ukraine, that's a high information to low action ratio. Like they can't do anything with that. That just causes anxiety. Like um, I pray for them. I I feel really bad for Ukraine, but, you know, like that's why we have a government and foreign policy, you know, like that's their job. It's not my job to do something about Ukraine. Right. Yeah. And I don't need to feed all of that to myself all the time or feed that to my children. Um So it's that, you know, that broad and narrow view that um, John's talking about uh, in place, right? Like how much are we consuming that is out of our control versus what we can control, right? And so um, when the protest happened in downtown Raleigh, like we took our kids down there and we Mm -hmm. said, this is, you know, when people are upset about something, um, they protest. Sometimes it gets a little out of hand and this is what it can look like. But that was something we talked to them about because it was in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's important. So I think I think one of the things that's going on, and, and you guys are um, kind of modeling this as we as we go through, as as far as how you're how you're talking about it, is you know our tendency, guys like me, <laughs> which is like nerdy <laughs> theology, <laughs> cultural, you know, you know, wanting to assess what 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 we can do is we can assess culture and say, hang on, what's going on? Let's take a step back. And I, and I think in some sense, we all should be doing this. The gospel gives us a kind of standpoint. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause we can point forward to like the, the, the new heavens and new earth, mm-hmm. even though we don't of course, fully know what that's going to look like, but we have a, we have a place to kind of say wherever we are at, whether it's 2020 or 1950 America or, a thousand years ago, we should always be looking around and saying, where are the storylines aiming our hearts away? How are we being shaped by the culture around us? And of course, that's not always going to be bad. And, but there are going to be points where if we just simply go with the flow. So it's really easy. If we just go with the flow, then it's going to actually be distorting in our lives and our kids' lives. And, I think one of the things that goes on is that we can look and we can be like, look at those people and look how the culture is impacting them. Look at how those people who aren't Christians, look how they're, you know, whatever issue it is that's like, you know, particularly evil in the minds of us Christians and say, look at how bad culture is all the time culture is shaping us and changing us and forming us in actually ways that we don't realize, but it feels safe because it's normal. Mm -hmm. And what you guys are doing is saying, okay, let's work through this. And then how are we going to change the rhythms and patterns of our lives? Because it's not good enough simply to say, um, number one, it's not good enough to just simply say, look at, look at the, a speck out there when there's a big plank in our own eye. I think somebody famous said that once. And then, um, and then, but it's also not good enough. And this is speaking to my own heart, like to say, Oh, I understand what's going on. Okay. And I've assessed this and it's in my mind how 
you know, we think globally rather than locally and how that impacts us and we don't have a sense of home. But then, and what you guys are modeling for is, is a kind of way to put some things in practice. Mm-hmm. Not in a way that says um, this isn't uh, fundamentalism 101 or 201 or something where it's like, here's the rules. Tonight's <laughs> the CD burning. Come on, guys. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, like we're on fire for Jesus. And so, you know, do it our way. But to say, and I want, you know, for those of you listening to this, to hear this, this isn't the Vandergriff saying, and this is how to raise perfect kids, right? <laughs> I mean, Definitely th- not. Yeah, they're, they're pretty close, but no, I mean, no, this isn't how to raise, this isn't we've got it all together, but this is more saying here are some ways that, that, that we're trying to establish some different patterns and rhythms and ways to view the world. Um, because we know it's, it's, it's not good enough just to kind of know the dangers. We have to put some things in, in practice. But, of course, that takes wisdom mm-hmm. rather than law here. Mm-hmm. So we're not giving you law for, for you to – or for you to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. But to say what are some ways that we can do this in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at the end of um – of your Abbey term and New City Fellows, um, something that I think was really important that you realized about yourself or or spoke about yourself is that you said that you you feel like you realize that your vocation is creativity. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's um, something about um, being connected to a place where 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 you start to create things of and about the place, mm-hmm. you know, about about mm-hmm. the space or place yeah. where you are, sure. uh, whether that's emotionally or or physically. Yeah. So I'm wondering if um, thinking about yourself in that way, what opportunities do you see for a, for a local church to invest in or embed or welcome creativity or or, or be creative in ways um, that can you know, uh, center us or root us deeper in, in local community. Hmm. Wish you would have gave me some time to think about that one. (laughs) I love this dynamic, you know, like when you have husband and wife on a podcast, you're like, oh yeah, (laughs) thanks a lot. (laughs) You could have told me that on the car ride over. (laughs) We only had all day to discuss this, but okay. Um, yeah, maybe it's different for different people, but I know a lot of the um, artists I know are, um, they're either very introverted or very much um, draw their energy from people. And so um, I think if there's a way for churches to um, invest in that in some way, um, even if that's like, you know, some kind of retreat or giving space to people. I know when the uh, pandemic shutdown happened, um, I felt like finally I was calm enough to actually think through like um, creative ideas. And that was just precious time um, that I loved. And I didn't, I didn't mind being home all the time because it gave me a little more space. And so um I think that might be one way. And then another is, you know, people draw their energy from people. Um, 
getting together uh, or like connecting like-minded um, people in the sense of like, hey, you're an artist, I'm an artist, you know, let's get together. Because, you know, big church too, it's hard to know who is who often. Um, yeah. Good. On the fly. <laughs> I will say to go back to, you mentioned Neil Postman's work and amusing ourselves to death, which is, um, I actually brought that up in some of the conversation directly after John's talk with, with those who attended in the live sessions and yeah, it's um, yeah. I think that can be added to the kind of reading list, and just that mm-hmm. he was talking. Do you guys remember her? I should. Um, I mean, it was like was it forty or fifty years ago? He wrote yeah. that, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it was really more the TV, yeah, and how TV and the medium is always going to affect the message, yeah. And so rather than seeing church. So I want to make this up, make this turn here from postman to to, to see to, to our our church life, seeing church as a kind of uh, uh, as a kind of home, a mm-hmm. family, in a particular location, mm-hmm. which is by the way how the New Testament seems mm-hmm. to picture this, right? All the family language, um, you know, uh, Jesus Himself saying, "These are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. These are the, those who do the will." of God. This is my family. So, and of course, Paul picks up this up as well, but, um, this, this type of family and, um, that share life together versus how TV has helped to make us primarily an entertainment culture. Mm-hmm. You see this in politics as well, right? I mean, it's, you have to, you have to look a certain way. You have to have high energy, you know, you just, you have to do that to be, elected and so but even how that's also affected our community as christians now it's you know we have stages Mm -hmm. we have so much of there's so much you know talk of production value Mm -hmm. and these things and that is what's kind of how we view church Mm -hmm. rather than family Mm -hmm. and so it's read around oftentimes the preaching of of one person Mm -hmm. and how electric they are and so you you have it you know, the church is built around kind of the entertainment value of, you know, one speaker and oftentimes, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, church growth classes, you know, often it seemed like when I was in some of them, it was like, yeah, you know, they said a lot of probably helpful things that I missed. But one of the things is you need a cool band and you need an electric <laughs> speaker, you know, and I'm like, oh, OK. You know, like that's kind of like where I saw that going. And it and it seems like the you know, the kind of notion of who, who's going to help you when you're, you know, your kids are going through a crisis, who's mm-hmm. going to help you when you have to bury a loved one, mm-hmm. who is going to be there when there's real pain and suffering and joy. Mm-hmm. And so this sense of both kind of a lack of home within a broader community mm-hmm. has also accompanied uh, a kind of, uh, the church as more of a place to be entertained mm-hmm. rather than a, than a, than a, the place you could call home. Mm-hmm. And then when you throw into the mix now in the last, what we've experienced, you know, political divisions, you, you can't actually, um, and the stuff we've experienced as a culture the last few years, it's very difficult to just dis- even disagree 
mm-hmm. because you don't have the relationship. These are these actually aren't your family. Mm-hmm. And so you're pretty quick to kind of go back to the point you were making about mm-hmm. the sandal or you're pretty much quick just to throw out these people as well as throw out your yeah. church and find somewhere else that's going to either entertain you or fits within a certain political narrative you have. Um, and, and so we're seeing what, what I'm, what I guess I'm getting at is some of this kind of restlessness. Mm-hmm. I wanting to make that direct connection to our, to our lack of rootedness mm-hmm. in a, in a home. And that mm-hmm. goes into culturally our neighborhoods, but also in our, in our ecclesial context yeah. as well. To learn more about the Center for Public Christianity and what we're doing to equip, connect, and mobilize Christians to seek the common good of our city, please visit us online.